Well, it's a good thing God knows all about tomorrow, holds the future in His hands, and we can uh, have a trust that Claudia sang about. It might be difficult for us as we ponder plagues of hail and fire, mountains and stars falling to the earth, plagues of demonic locusts, as we'll look at this morning. But as bizarre and terrifying as all of these things are, we know that God holds the future in His hand and that we are in His care. And that is a comforting, uh, comforting thought. We need to keep that in mind as we pursue our studies in the book of Revelation. Uh, within your bulletin, look at, pull out the insert, and on the back of the prayer sheet, you'll find an outline to help you follow along this morning. We'll be looking at chapters 8 and 9 of the book of Revelation. Remember that in chapter 5, there was a scroll, the book of destiny, that was brought forward in heaven. And that scroll was sealed with seven seals. And those in heaven lamented because nobody could be found who was worthy to open those seals, break the seals, and open the book of destiny. But finally, one was found, the Lamb of God. And he came forward and broke the seals. And as he broke the seals, the first six of which are recorded in chapter 6, uh, very important events, mostly catastrophic, followed with the breaking of each seal. Then chapter 7 was a parenthesis, uh, indicating to us the security of the believers and the, and the certainty of their destiny. And then in chapter 8, we'll see the last of the seals, in verse 1, And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Before this time, there had been continual noise. The noise of the praise of the angels who night and day were magnifying the greatness of God. There was the commotion in heaven of trying to find one worthy to open the seals. And then as he broke the first six seals, the the, uh, all of the noise and commotion that came with the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the uh, other things that resulted from the breaking of those. But now there's a half hour of silence, an ominous portent of more judgment to come. And then after the breaking of the seventh seal, we see nothing in particular happen except seven trumpeters come. So the last seal opens up uh, a multiplication of judgment that is coming. Verse 2 says, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. But before the trumpets begin to, glow, to blow, there's another parenthesis in verses 3 to 5. And another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer, and he filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. In the temple in Jerusalem, there was a, one altar in the courtyard, the altar of the burnt sacrifices. A second altar is found within the temple uh, itself in the holy place. This was the altar of incense. 
And every morning and evening, a priest would go and take a censer, which was a vessel rather like a large saucepan, and fill it with coals from the uh, altar of burnt offering and take it into the holy place and uh, put those coals in the altar of incense and then uh, pour incense on them. Offer up a, a sacrifice of sweet aroma to God. Incense was used because it was, first of all, because it was a valuable material symbolizing the value of the one to whom the sacrifice was made. Incense was used, furthermore, because it was sweet-smelling, indicating that which was well-pleasing to God. And here we have a picture of of an angel in heaven taking the prayers of the saints and mixing them with incense so that they might rise as a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Now, I think we have here an indication of the fact that our prayers in and of themselves are inadequate. They need to be mixed with the incense by this angel. We have here a recognition of something that we all feel from time to time. Many of us feel all the time. Namely, how do we pray? How do we say the right things? How can we, as weak and feeble human beings, approach the God of the universe with our prayers? And many of us feel stumped and baffled. But we have an indication here that God himself provides for us. He provides the angel to mix the incense with the prayers so that they can rise to him in a pleasing, sweet-smelling way. It's very similar to the thought in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, which says, And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So God provides for us in our prayers, in the weakness of our prayers, through the intercession of the Spirit and the groanings through us, and furthermore by the angel of incense, mixing incense with our prayers as they rise before Him. Well, what is the content of these prayers of the saints? Well, we're not told directly in this passage, but we have some very good hints. The first hint is found in chapter 6, where we see saints praying beneath the altar. In verses 9 to 11, which is the fifth seal. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So it seems that the prayers of the saints within the context of the prayers at this altar and the book of Revelation are prayers for vengeance, for God to avenge their blood and bring justice upon the earth. Such a supposition is confirmed in in chapter 8. In verse 5, after the prayers are, are offered with the incense, the angel then takes the coals from the altar, puts them in the censer, and then dumps them upon the earth. And then following that are the sounds and the thunder and the lightning and an earthquake, signs of the judgment of God. Our third hint as to the nature of these prayers, is found in what follows in the blowing of the seven trumpets. And as we'll see, as they're blown, then the wrath of God is poured out in judgment upon the earth. I think we're very safe to conclude that these prayers, these saints, like the saints in in chapter 6, are praying for God's judgment to come. But isn't such a prayer inconsistent with the age of grace in which we live? Jesus himself told us that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. 
So if we're to do that, how can we pray for judgment to fall upon the earth? Well, there are two different kinds of prayer for judgment. One is that which arises from personal bitterness. Somebody has wronged me and I want to get back at them. It's a prayer that desires personal vengeance because I am hurt and I am a very important person. Matter of fact, the most important person in the universe, though I won't admit that openly to you. The second kind of prayer is a prayer not because I'm so important, but because God is so important. It's a prayer that justice might be done, that truth might be upheld, and that God might be vindicated. The saints in chapter 6 pray for vengeance because they were killed as martyrs for the name of Jesus Christ. And as long as that kind of injustice persists, then the world might very naturally conclude their God is not very strong to allow this kind of thing to happen. The Lord Jesus himself taught us to pray in a manner like this. When he said that when we pray, we should say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Such words are not words of praise, as they're often misunderstood, but they're a petition for God's glory and vindication. As we pray, uh, hallowed be thy name. We're saying, God, may your name be honored upon earth. May it be hallowed, may it be sanctified. May your kingdom come. May you come as king upon this earth and set up your kingdom of justice and squelch injustice once and for all. Rule with a rod of iron so that your your will will be done on earth to the full extent, even as it's done in heaven. And this is the kind of prayer that these saints are offering. We see something else about prayer here. We see something of the nature of its mystery. Now, we often err in one of two extremes in thinking about prayer. Sometimes we err by thinking, well, God is sovereign. He's going to do what He's going to do. I just don't understand how my prayers make any sense, how they do anything, so I won't bother with praying. The other extreme is thinking through prayers we can manipulate God. If we can just say the right words, the right phrases, use the right magical formulas, as it were, and pray with the right arrangement of people and timing and everything else, then we can guarantee that God has to do this and this and this. The Scripture teaches that God is sovereign. He remains sovereign, and yet we see in a passage like this that prayer is an integral part of His workings. He has ordained that things not take place apart from our prayers. And as mysterious as it is, and beyond my comprehension or ability to explain, we do see that our prayers are important. As God is working out His plan of judgment upon the earth, And the culmination of his workings at the end of time, the prayers of the saints enter in as an important and necessary means for his working. So we're encouraged to pray by this section. We're encouraged to pray because the feebleness of our prayers is transformed into a sweet-smelling aroma to God through the incense that is mixed with it. We're encouraged to pray furthermore because we see that our prayer is an integral part of the workings of God. Well, they pray, and in answer to the prayer, the seven trumpets come forward. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And the first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, 
And a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up. And all of the grass was burned up. Presumably all of the grass on a third part of the earth, because in chapter 9 we're told that there is still grass on the earth at that point. So this is the first trumpet. A third of all of the vegetation on the earth is burned up. It's hard to conceive of what that would mean. We can feel the consequences here slightly and, and certainly around the world for a, a small localized uh, uh, drought or uh, uh, too much rain spoiling a crop or some other kind of blight. But here a whole third of the vegetation of the earth will be destroyed and burned up. It's impossible to, for me to conceive of, of the havoc that would wreak in the whole economic system of the, of the entire world, and the famine that would ensue, and the hardship. And the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Well, what is this mountain? We're not sure. Maybe something that God creates just for this occasion. Maybe it's a, uh, pictured like a mountain. He says something like a great mountain. Maybe it's some kind of huge asteroid or, or a comet. We're not sure. But it destroys a third of the ocean and the, and the ships in that third of the ocean and all of the, the living creatures in that third of the ocean. The, the third angel then sounds... And a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Wormwood was a, a root that was proverbial for the bitterness that it would bring about when mixed with, with water. And here a great star fell. And I would presume that it explodes in space... Uh, in our atmosphere and spreads out, out through a third of the earth and destroys the fresh water supplies. All of the rivers, all of the springs in that third part of the earth are destroyed, poisoned, polluted by the contaminants in this star. As if these are not enough, a, a fourth angel sounds in verse 12, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were smitten so that a third of them might be darkened, and the day might not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Now, this verse is a little bit confusing. It seems from the first of the verse that uh, a third of the sun is destroyed and a third of the moon and stars, and yet it's clear from the second half of the verse that it's only the effects of the sun that are, that are uh, obliterated for a third part of the day so that there's darkness for a third of the day. And a third of the night is pitch black with no stars or, or clouds. If the sun were to lose a third of its power, then the earth would freeze instantly. And, and apparently that's not what happens. Well, here are the first four of these trumpets. They're all plagues of judgment upon the natural order. First upon vegetation. Then upon, secondly, upon the ocean. Thirdly, upon the rivers and springs, each time a third being afflicted. And finally, upon the heavenly bodies, and a third of their powers are taken away. And as if these judgments are not enough, or not horrible enough, 
an angel comes, or an eagle comes, verse 13, And I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who were about to sound. In other words, you've not seen anything yet. As if the destruction of a third of, of these different aspects of nature are not enough. The worst is yet to come. Well, we see in this verse something of the nature of these trumpets. He says, Woe to those who dwell on the earth. And if you study through the book of Revelation, you'll notice that the term, those who dwell upon the earth, is a technical term for unbelievers. In chapter 6, the uh, uh, saints who have been martyred cry for God to uh, judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And they're not saying that all the believers who are on the earth are resp somewhat responsible and you should kill them too. But the term is, is used of, of those whose whole perspective and life is limited by the earth. They're earthly minded. And these judgments are going to be poured out upon them. And I think what we have here is somewhat of an analogy to that which happened during the Exodus in Moses' time. The first plague of hail and fire is analogous to the, the plague of hail and fire in Exodus 9. The second, that of turning the ocean into blood, is similar to the plague of turning the Nile River, which was the sole source of, of uh, water for Egypt, into blood in Exodus 7. The fourth trumpet of uh, a blighting of the sun and the moon and stars is similar to the plague of darkness in Exodus 10, in which there was a, a thick, gloomy darkness for three solid days upon Egypt. In the fifth a trumpet, which we will look at in a minute, is similar to the locust plague in Exodus 10. In Moses' time, God's people, the Hebrews, were enslaved in bondage in Egypt. They were despised, they were abused, they were persecuted. And yet God was in control, and through the series of plagues, He did two things. He poured out the wrath of His judgment on the unbelieving Egyptian uh, nation, and secondly, he demonstrated his might and his power that he might be seen to be a great and glorious God, one before whom man can bow and in whose hands man can, can completely entrust his life because he's powerful and capable of doing anything. And we see the same sort of thing happening here. God pouring out his wrath on the unbelieving world and the woe is to those who dwell upon the earth. We know there will be believers on the earth at this time. And yet, the woe is not to them. If we're living during that period, we will, I'm sure, experience great pain and turmoil uh, and upheaval because of these uh, uh, the natural calamities that happen. And yet, we ourselves will not be the recipients of the wrath of God. This is made more clear in, uh, in chapter 9, the, the, first of the, the fifth of the uh, trumpets. But at, just as in the Exodus experience, all of the plagues culminated in the mighty deliverance by God of His people. In the same way we see in the book of Revelation, all of these plagues will culminate in the mighty deliverance of God's people. As Jesus Christ comes again, and we are delivered from the wrath, the turmoil, just as the Israelites were given, uh, uh, taken out and, and given a new land, so we will be taken out 
and given a, a new kingdom as Christ reigns upon the earth. Well, in chapter 9, verses 1 to 11, we see the fifth of these trumpets. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth. And power was given them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. And they will long to die, and death flees from them. And the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads, as it were, crowns like gold. And their faces were like the faces of men. And they had hair like the hair of women. And their teeth were like the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, of many horses rushing to battle. And they have tails like scorpions and stings. And in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still after these things. In verse 1, we are, uh, John says that he's, he saw a star from heaven which had fallen to earth. He didn't see it falling, but he saw it at, after it had fallen to earth. And it seems clear from the rest of this passage that the star is the devil. He was one of God's star angels and yet fell from grace and was cast uh, out of heaven to earth. And a key is given to him, the key to the bottomless pit. The fact that he has to be given the key indicates that God is in control, even of his demonic hordes. The devil can do nothing beyond which God allows him to do. God is in control of all of these events. As horrible as these things might be, they come from the hand and the plan of the sovereign God. And he opens the pit and a great uh, army of innumerable locusts come forth. But they're not ordinary locusts. They're able to sting like a scorpion stings. We're told that they're commanded not to do that which locusts normally do, namely devastate the crops. But they're told only to torment a certain group of people, those who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. So we're told here explicitly that, the, that, that this plague, if not the others around it, is only upon those who are unbelievers. It's a, a part of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth. The, the, uh, their torment will last, we're told in verse 5, for five months, which is the normal lifetime of a locust. And then the locusts are described. Uh, their appearance is, is uh, horrible. It's terrifying. Some have suggested that what we have here is a symbolic representation, not of locusts, but of uh, a vast array of, of uh, military helicopters 
or some other such thing, and it and it could be. I would rather think myself that because they're coming from the pit, because they're not killing but only tormenting, and because they're only afflicting the uh, those who are unbelievers, that they probably are really locusts, demonic locusts in some way. Locusts are animals of some sort that are inhabited by demons and are able to, to torment men. The king over them in verse 11, we're told, is the angel of the abyss. Satan is an angel, a fallen angel. And his name is called in Hebrew Abaddon, which means destruction. In Greek, he has the name Apollyon, which means destroyer. Satan appears to us as an angel of light and entices us to follow him into a life of fulfillment and pleasure and success. And yet his promises are empty. He brings instead destruction. He is out to destroy us. And we are warned by this as we see him for his true self. That as we follow his temptations, as pleasurable as they seem, we're following deceit. And the end will be destruction. Well, what do we learn from such a passage? Well, we learn that God is a fearful, even terrifying God. And we are told by many people that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. They claim that the God of the Old Testament is primitive and cruel and uh, spiteful. Whereas the God of the New Testament is enlightened, loving, and merciful, and kind. What we find instead is simply a difference of emphasis. You find no picture in the New Testament more tender than the picture of God's love in the story of Hosea and his continual loving of his wife who has gone into prostitution and degradation and his perseverance in loving her. And we're told that that illustrates God's love for his people. Love that never gives up. And yet there is a difference in emphasis because law comes before grace. Men must see God as the holy judging God before His love and His mercy make sense. But in the New Testament in several places, particularly in the Gospels and the book of Revelation, we see this severe side of God as well. God shows us this side of Himself because... Though we're in an age of grace, He still wants us to fear Him. Let me read to you a couple of paragraphs from John White's book, Daring to Draw Near, in which he explains something about why God wants to paint such a picture of Himself. But why should He make men afraid? We are foolish to suppose that fear is evil. Fear can either be good or bad according to its effect upon us. A child's fear of fire can lead to a healthy respect for its destructive powers, a respect which enables the child in later life to make wise use of fire's benefits. Without fear, the child could be severely burned. It would be better for the child to be so terrified that he never made use of fire than for him to be destroyed by fire. But it is better still that the child, through fear, learn that degree of respect which enables him to harness fire's power. Fear, then, is a stepping stone to enrichment in our spiritual life. Without fear, we are exposed to dangers of which we have little or no understanding. If through fear we learn reverence for God, our feet will be set on the road that leads to wisdom. 
we're all in danger of taking God lightly, of treating Him as if He's not worthy of the utmost of respect, even fear. God tells us through this passage that He wants us to fear Him. If you're a non-Christian, then know that God wants you to fear Him. You might say to yourself, I don't really feel a need for Christ. I feel that my life is sufficiently together. Well, you might not feel a need for Christ, but we are, you're, you are told here through these pictures, through this book, that you are going to have to face a God of judgment one day. There are many who feel that the, this period of the Great Tribulation is right around the corner, and we may begin experiencing it any time soon. You may have to go through this and live during the earth, during this time of these awful judgments, have to be tormented by these demonic locusts and experience the whole upheaval of the, of the world as these trumpets blow and a third of the vegetation destroyed and a third of the sea and the rivers. Or it may be that at the end is yet a, a bit off and you won't have to go through this, but you will have to face the God who pours these judgments out upon the earth in Judgment Day. And you'll have to stand before Him and say, I didn't have time for you. I didn't feel a need for you. I thought you weren't important. I thought I was smarter and I could live my own life and run my life better than you. Well, God doesn't want any man to stand naked before Him in the day of judgment with such feeble excuses. And therefore, He warns you that now is the time of salvation. Now is the time to respond. He wants you to see Him as a God of fear. Uh, it's a fearful God that you might fear Him and bow before Him as Creator, Redeemer, and Savior, and Lord. And those of us who are Christians are also told that, that we should fear God. Not because we're going to be recipients of His wrath, we won't. As we see as He pours out these, wrath, these uh, trumpets of wrath upon the earth during the period of the Great Tribulation, we're not recipients of those, though we'll live in a period of chaos. So we won't be... Uh, receive God's wrath at that time, nor in the day of judgment will we receive wrath. Jesus Christ has paid the full price. He's paid our debt. He's taken the wrath of God upon Himself when He was punished by dying on the cross for our sins. And yet we too need to realize that God takes sin seriously enough that He pours out this kind of wrath, this kind of judgment upon the earth. We are tempted to take sin lightly, to think it's no big deal, and yet we see that God has a hatred of sin. And He does so not because He's an uptight old fuddy-duddy or a prude or something like that. He hates sin because He knows what it does. As we said, Satan appears to us as an angel of light. He promises success, just as He did to Eve in the garden. If you only eat of this tree, you'll experience life. You'll be like God. And yet all of His promises are empty. They're filled with lies. And we, too, must remember that we need to take Him seriously. We need to take sin seriously and realize that all those things we're tempted to do, to be bitter, to hold grudges, to get revenge, to indulge in, in various uh, selfish pastimes and desires, uh, be covetous and all these other things, are temptations to our own destruction. God wants us to see... Satan is a destroyer, Abaddon, an Apollyon. And he wants us to see him as the one who is hateful of sin, 
because it is a very serious matter. And yet we are reminded elsewhere in the New Testament that we can stand before Him cleansed, free of any blight of sin, because Jesus Christ is our, uh, is our hope. He is our righteousness, not we ourselves. What's awful to think that these things actually are going to happen. The Revelation was written not just to titillate our imaginations, to enable us to write uh, bestsellers about the end times, but it was written that we might know that these things will happen. When the trumpets begin to blow, a third of the vegetation will be destroyed, and a third of the ocean uh, destroyed, and a third of the water sources ruined, and a third of the heavenly bodies uh, blighted. And there will be the plague of, of demonic locusts tormenting men for five months. God tells us all this because He does want us to fear Him. Let me read again. Fear, then, is a stepping stone to enrichment in our spiritual life. Without fear, we are exposed to dangers of which we have little or no understanding. If through fear we learn reverence for God, our feet will be set on the road that leads to wisdom. Let's pray. God, our Father, we bow before you today as an awesome as a fearful God. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in all of the uh, different aspects of your being. Lord, we are tempted to uh, be cynical, be flippant. It's the, uh, the attitude of our age. Help us, Lord, to learn to take life seriously. Help us to have eyes of compassion and pity for those who are outside of Christ who will have to go through such horrible judgments. We thank you, Lord, that you are our Savior and our Redeemer. Help us to respect you and to reverence you in all aspects of life. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, maybe you have some questions about these chapters of Revelation or what we've done so far. Uh, I don't promise to have any answers, but maybe you have some questions you'd like to, to throw out. Uh, the question is, do we know, know who the unbelievers are because they'll be the ones suffering? I would assume so. I assume it will be clear. But as we'll see next week, with the next uh, trumpet... In spite of all these judgments, it says men didn't repent. They wouldn't repent. So the issues are going to be very clear. Sometimes we can have the false perception that if people could just see things, see what was really true, then they'd believe. But we're told that's not all there is. Men have a moral perversity about them that makes them see the truth and reject it and want to go their own way even though it means their destruction. And just because they are being tormented uh, by these locusts, they don't say, oh, well, I'll just believe and get rid of all this. and it'll be." There's such a, a, a twist and a perversion within human nature that they, they don't want to pay the price of submission to God to get out of the, the torture. Why the fraction of a third recurring? Uh, well, I imagine it's, it's somewhat symbolic in some way. I'm not sure that I understand the, the symbolism. It, 
it's probable that it's not a uh, an exact third, but just a, a large portion approximating that. Um, I'm not sure beyond that. It won't be total destruction. And yet, if you add all of these things up, a third of the vegetation, a third of the ocean, a third of the rivers, they're, they're going to affect everybody. And then you get to the the uh, sixth trumpet and a third of mankind is killed by uh, warfare, by battle then. And there are very few left, I'd say, after all these things. So it's hard for us to imagine the degree of devastation that's going to take place through all of this. Yeah, the question is, will they have an opportunity to accept Christ while they're going through it? Yes, they will. Uh... And presumably, the uh, I'm sure that the afflictions would stop if they were to do so. And what point of the tribulation of these seven trumpets occur? What do you think? <laughs> I don't know. We're not told here. Um, I would think that it's probably in the last half of the tribulation period. Um, during the first half, if we understand correctly, there's a, a period of peace when Antichrist makes the uh, peace agreement with Israel. Uh, and I would imagine that that first three and a half years is a time of relative peace throughout the earth and that these all take place at the, during the last three and a half years.